Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So welcome again to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast, and in this case, also the video cast. My guest today is Dean Trevolino of Trevolino Keller, and we're going to talk about 360 marketing, 360 reputation marketing. How does What does that mean within the context of entrepreneurs and investors when they're looking at their the companies, their growth strategies, sustainability long-term, their role within a community? probably going to touch on lots of topics like, you know, this whole idea of conscious capitalism, because that's the, the trust factor that you create with your employees, with your community, with your customers and engagement. We have, um, we're so fractured in our uh, communications out there in our media messaging and, and, and the noise that, that companies have to cut through when they're trying to not only establish a brand, but also establish a relationship with their customers and then convert that into sales. And then ultimately we're going to get into the idea of, of goodwill and how the, that trust factor can create an additional level of value within the marketplace for a company when they get ready to create their exit strategy and produce that return on investors. We return for investors and return for the founders in the whole reason why an entrepreneur creates a business, not just making money while you're in it, but making a lot of money when you exit it. So um, uh, let me introduce Dean here in, and, and talk about our background because Dean and I um, have gone back, I, we were trying to reminisce a bit about it, but it's over 10 years that we have known each other within the startup community in Atlanta. And uh, we were just kind of reminiscing because he started his firm uh, and he'll tell us a little bit more about his journey on that. But they started in 2003 with his longtime colleague, Jenna Keller. And that's, of course, is the reason why the name is Trevolino Keller. And that's their domain name as well. So I, I visited their domain in preparation for this. And there's so much great information in there. And the blog is an excellent blog. You need to subscribe to their email list if you are interested in marketing strategies and techniques for your own company or for companies that you're working with. I highly recommend it. And so, you know, they saw an opportunity to step out of the big corporate world and provide a direct um, impact to businesses and, uh, and as a result of, of their approach to it. And, they, and it's a fascinating story because, you know, they, from this idea and this concept, which, you know, it's hard to differentiate when you're in a public relations and media marketing, but they have gone on to become uh, number four on, on some uh, uh, some tallies, number fourth in the country, but second in many, many, many categories, just in a very recent uh, assessment. And, and uh, uh, for all different industries, I think of nine different industries that, or which you'll probably correct me here in just a second. And, yeah, um, and, and, and so many of these companies that are, to you, a name brand started with a program, or he first discovered it in a program that, I, how I came to know them, which is called Startup Council. So we're going to uh, jump in on all of that here. And uh, first I wanted to say, go ahead and let G Dean say hello to all of you. Hello, Dean. Yeah, hey, hello. Good morning, everyone. Great to have you here today. So, 
So, you know, it's a big jump when you go from the safety of a corporate gig to starting your own, particularly when it's not because you have a specific intellectual property that is going to, you know, differentiate yourself. You're going to automatically have a new market. In this case, you're kind of wedging yourself into a, a place that there is a lot of confusion when it comes to creating value in the marketing. And, and these are conversations that you and I have had about um, how entrepreneurs sometimes view this whole approach to marketing. So let's talk first about how you made that decision. There had to have been a, a, a strong passion there for you to go out and, and start your own firm. Yeah, um, Karen, thanks for having me on. I'm excited about being on the program. Uh, you know, ironically, I had no interest in owning a firm. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up with a father who had his own uh, ad, ad business, really? designer. And, you know, what I remember from that was, you know, being up at night, uh, late nights, all nighters, um, trying to hunt and gather. And it just seemed like a lot of work with very little reward, whole lot of stress, always stress um, in trying to get new business. Um, and you have to be, you know, great at the craft. Uh, as well as running the business. Um, and my father was great at the craft, probably not as great at running the business. And so, you know, I chose the path of working for someone else, uh, working for some of the best, you know, global agencies um, in the world. And, uh, and I did that for, you know, about 16 years um, along the way, met uh, Jenna Keller, who would eventually become my business partner. Um, but, you know, 2002, uh, we had just kind of come out of, right. you know, a dot-com crisis, economic crisis uh, that I had not seen in my lifetime. And when you're in a big agency, uh, you know, your, your role, um, your importance uh, is really measured by your relationship with clients. Uh, but in a big agency, you have a lot of different roles. Some have are tied to clients, some are tied to managing practices, some are tied to managing, you know, P&Ls in offices. And those that are not tied to clients are those are the ones that are vulnerable. And so for the first time, I felt like I did not have control of my destiny. Um, as experienced I was at that point. And so it was a little more of, you know, push comes the shove. I've got to, I've got to go take control. And so, um, you know, I started working on a business plan. Um, Jenna, you know, was feeling in her, in her own office, in her own way, the same kind of pressure and, you know, got together and she said, what do you, you know, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think <laughs> it's time to go out and do, uh, you know, do our own thing. And so that was it. Put her name on the business plan with mine. And, you know, we went out and started, started a firm. Um, and, you know, and that was 2003. Uh, you know, interesting things happen after a crisis, uh, economic crisis. You have a consolidation of the market, right? And for us, what was interesting is that that consolidation was happening uh, where we were strongest, which was technology. 
Uh, and so we thought there was an, a window of opportunity to go out there with a boutique firm, with a great technology pedigree, and not necessarily try to go after the largest technology companies, but really go after the emerging companies that are gonna come out of the economic crisis, the startups, um, as well as the middle market brands. And so we were always, and continue to be 17 years later, very realistic on you know, what our kind of pond is. Um, if a Fortune 500 company wants to call us because they've heard about us, they like our reputation, we've gotten a strong referral, we're more than happy to represent a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> but where we spend our time um, and our own marketing is really focused more on emerging and middle market brands. And that, you know, that strategy has you know, paid off for us. So when you talk about um, emerging markets or startups, and let's, like, let's just dive in on the whole startup council and how that came to pass, because that ended up leading to a number of, of really prominent companies, right? And so, you know, the, um, a lot of times people are afraid to work with startups because they don't have money or invest that time, or I have found my own sort of um, weakness, if you will, is that I love entrepreneurs. And so I probably have donated too much time to <laughs> helping entrepreneurs over the years, but it's, um, it's rewarding to me. And so I do, I do it a lot. And I know you have done it even more so than that. So was, did it chicken and egg? Was it something because it was this, this merge of the markets and this consolidation and you saw it was an opportunity was it sort of just a, a heartfelt give back to the community or was it really actually strategic because you could plant your seeds early and then grow yeah. as these companies grow? And then, and, yeah. and talk about some examples, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a little bit of all of those things. Right. And uh, again, back to the point about you've got to be really you know, good at your craft. Uh, and for us back then, it was primarily public relations but you also have to know how to run the business. And I think we've been fortunate to, um, to build the right kind of team that we could do both very effectively. And so when we, when we created Startup Council, it was uh, in part because we, um, we wanted to be around startups. We liked that energy. We liked that disruptive uh, mentality. Um, but we also knew that we had a responsibility to our staff to generate revenue. And so we had to have a diverse portfolio of clients um, so that we could, in fact, support startups uh, with little to no expectation of revenue in the beginning. And that if we created something like a brand called Startup Council, we could bring others into that fold, other experts like yourself, that could create value, real value for startups. Um, not just us doing it alone, uh, but create real value um, that ultimately would help everyone who was in Startup Council as consultants gain a reputation as being a um, you know, advocate 
for that community. And, um, and you know, again, the expectation wasn't that um, even the companies that would come through Startup Council would in fact hire us. In fact, if you recall, we were pretty clear that this was right. not a selling environment. It was a consulting environment. And, um, and so, you know, uh, that we had that startup council for, you know, several years. It was for us, the beginning of, um, you know, kind of the platform for us to create an ecosystem that, that today is now built around six different brands. Um, everything from uh, not brands that necessarily that we create it like startup council, um, but brands that had a similar mission like a uh, tech Alpharetta or an Atlanta tech village, Atlanta tech angels, raise form, correct form. They all have a similar mission in they're trying to support and foster growth within that startup community. And so that was kind of a natural evolution for us. Winepreneurs, which is the most recent um, add to that ecosystem, is something that we created and that we run and manage. But once again, we do it with partners who can all kind of take a little bit of the effort um, uh, in supporting and being collaborative, uh, but also gain the benefit of being you know, in the community of uh, some of these other startups. Uh, and so that was, again, strategic, uh, because when we, if you're a startup that has, that's, you know, moving quickly, you're trying to scale, we want to be in your consideration set when you're thinking about an agency, um, in part because we've had success, and in part because we've given back. Uh, right. without any expectation for or of revenue at that particular time. Yeah. So I want to uh, kind of jump in on the, the marketing side yep. and this the concept of 360, but I do want to circle back around just for those entrepreneurs that are listening right now. Uh, and, you know, this idea that you've been in business 17 years and you, um, you know, now have achieved this recognition, number two in so many different categories. Uh, so was it, was it a steady straight line that you just were really good at managing your cash flow and growing it and being kind yeah. of steady on that? Uh, we, the whole industry, the entire economy in the U S and in the world had a hiccup in 2009. Yeah. So that was sort of like right in the middle, you know, to a certain degree of we're in 2010 and it took us a few years to get out of that. So, you know, some, uh, you as partners, you know, running this, describe a little bit about how you have managed the, the um, prosperous, the lean, the scary, the uncertainty as you've <laughs> grown your, your firm to come out now, you know, number two in so many categories, which, yeah. you know, is, uh, as you said in your blog, is actually considered number one, you know, kind of overall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, philosophically, we... Uh, from the very beginning, you know, our growth aspirations were very um, practical. We did not say, set a goal, let's grow by 30% each year, 40% each year. 
um, I think you run the risk of compromises, at least in the professional services side. You can certainly grow that quickly, you know, as a software company um, or, uh, you know, other types of technology companies and even other industries. But professional services um, is challenging. They're, they're, you, know, you, you ultimately run the risk of compromise when you set a ultra, you know, really aggressive uh, growth. And so um, we were not, you know, we did not want to be greedy. Let's just grow consistently. Let's be profitable. Uh, let's compensate our staff um, at the industry averages, but then exceed them with things like bonuses and commissions and other incentives that, you know, round up the package to uh, to be you know unparalleled and that has served us in having what we believe is the industry's you know best retention rate having lost you know one person to an yeah, agency I saw in that. 17, 17 years in an, in an industry that has a lot of turnover um, and so so that, that philosophy of slow and steady consistent growth has served us well and then we've made, you know, I think smart decisions, um, you know, other than your staff, your, your next biggest line item is your, your, uh, your lease, your property, where your space is. And, you know, when we started, there was, there, we didn't have WeWork, we didn't have so much, you know, remote workplaces. Uh, it was, you know, you had a brick and mortar space and that was really important. Um, but you could spend a lot of money on a lease being in the right place, the right place, the right part of town with the right, um, you know, aesthetic for your clients. And we felt like those things were important, but we didn't want to lease. Um, and so part of our strategy was to own our space. Uh, that allows us to reduce our monthly costs um, dramatically. And so, we owned the space, we uh, expanded that space, we sold that space, we bought a bigger space. Um, and so that, that was um, really important for the first 15 years of our business uh, to really kind of control, um, control our costs. Um, we're very shrewd in terms of managing, you know, our P&L and staff utilization. Again, in an agency or in professional services, you know, you bill by the hour, people have to be, um, have to hit certain thresholds. And so, um, you know, if we build the business based on a lower expectation per person, then we have more running room in terms of, um, you know, exceeding our capacity before we have to staff up. Because uh, mm -hmm. what you don't want to do is, you know, your 15 person shop, and you think new business is coming, so you add three more people before the business is there, and then the business doesn't come, and now really you only need 12 people instead of 18. You know, we've managed to avoid those kinds of scenarios so that, you know, we're 15 people and we're maxed, and when we need a 16th, we're gonna get a 16th because the business is there, not because we think it's gonna be there. That's a big uh, mistake I think a lot of small businesses make. And even, even startups as they're growing will make that mistake. And we've also had a shared kind of shared um, responsibility model. So we have, since the beginning, we've had one person who is not a billable employee. 
Um, now you can't ask that one person to do everything um, in terms of office management and finances and things like that. But if you spread some of those responsibilities in a minimal way across the staff, then you can minimize how many you know, admin people you need, which again, benefits your bottom line. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So, okay. So let's get into this idea of um, the 360 reputation marketing. That was a term that you used and I, I it was, it was curious to me. I, I look at your website, I see, you know, five areas of media. And this is where I think a lot of times entrepreneurs and, in, and definitely investors, you know, um, will get confused a lot of times. And you'll, I'm sure you've seen it yeah. significantly more than I've even seen it where people say, oh, we're going to go get our, they've got this social media strategy and they don't understand the importance of creating awareness and brand and mar traditional marketing, advertising, all these kind of things. And so you call it, and I love the way you, you put this out there on your website. Again, that's trevelinakeller.com. And that's uh, public relations is earned media. Social media management is shared media. Digital marketing is paid media. Demand generation owned media, which I, that was an interesting way to describe that. And creative services is mixed media. So talk about this. What does 360 mean? How yeah. does that fit together? And, and what does that mean for your clients? Because, you know, part of your, your goal or how you approach it is outcome driven. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of industry terms out there. Some overlap. There's, it's easy for it to be confusing, particularly if you go to, from one agency's website to another agency's, right? And today, you know, there's, there's been a blending, or at least over the last couple of years, there's been a blending of um, agency services. So it's not so uh, cut and dry, right? A public relations firm, that only does public relations uh, is few and far between, or at least in my opinion, it, you know, that model is, um, is uh, limiting. And so we evolve the agency kind of back to your earlier question about, you know, how did we get to where we are 17 years later? Um, it's because we evolved our capabilities because we, we knew um, years ago that, you know, public relations has some limitations in, in its ability to impact the bottom line. And for our kind of focus on emerging and middle market brands, they don't have the resources to have multiple agencies often. Um, and so they got to rely, they got to make a choice. Which agency do I pick and where do I invest my dollars? And so we need it to be more than just public relations. Um, we need to be able to say, yeah, we can impact the bottom line and we can do that with some other disciplines, right? And so uh, it went from public relations and social media, and then we start looking at digital marketing. Uh, creative services was always an important part of that process because creative really kind of touches all disciplines. If you um, if you think as broadly as you can, even on the public relations side, with the way you package up content. So then we kind of took a step back and thought, well, we really need the common thread in all of these things is media. Um, 
And so we thought maybe it'll simplify the message if we just talk about it from a media standpoint. And instead of talking about it uh, from a public relations or a, or a digital marketing, it's media. Media is what people consume, whether it's a consumer or a business, and they make decisions based on um, that content. Uh, and then they get that content from a whole different, you know, number of sources. So that's how we kind of moved to the earned, um, shared, paid, owned, uh, mixed model. Um, now, taking a step back from that, um, there's, you know, for years there have been terms like reputation management, which really kind of falls under, you know, public relations, communications, um, and then you even had 360 uh, branding or 360 marketing. Um, and we learned some of those things from our global agency days. Um, but no one was really combining reputation and marketing. Um, and, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, really simple reasons. One, most um, agencies that are focused on reputation don't have the capabilities on the marketing side. And so they tend to stay within their reputation management community. Um, most um, creative agencies, branding agencies, um, have not invested a great deal on the reputation side. Um, they may have public relations capabilities, but they're not front and center, they're kind of um, ground cover. And so our approach was put reputation front and center and then build the other capabilities around marketing so that ultimately um, what we're doing is creating the content that, that uh, reinforces the reputation but then we're pushing it out to as many different channels as we can through marketing. And that, because we believe that, that ultimately the consumer or the business decision maker is choosing products and services because they've, they're relying on a third party to tell them this is actually a good product or a good service. Whether that third party is a traditional media outlet um, a podcaster that has a, that has its own reputation, an analyst, um, a social influencer, they're all out there for us to associate ourselves with to help build reputation. Okay, so one way, I guess, I'm, as you were talking, I, so 360 is really, you know, a starting point of, in this case, maybe it's a, a PR piece or something that goes full circle Right. So yeah. that seems so obvious, but, you know, goes full circle through all the other media pieces to come around and, and encapsulate this, this the idea of, of trusting a brand or a vendor so that you will do business with them. Right. Is that kind of in a nutshell, a way to yeah, so I'll, give you, I'll give you, give you an example. Um, yeah, you said, was it Carvana? With Carvana, the, yeah. Right. Yeah. You said, cause they were, and, and did they come out of Startup Council? Is that how you first met them? No, that they were um, a little bit later, uh, about um, six years, six, seven years ago. Uh, 
they, uh, you know, they're Phoenix-based company. They launched in Atlanta um, in a very competitive environment in terms of used car sales. Um, And, uh, and um, you know, a proposition that, a selling proposition that had, um, you know, barriers in terms of the consumer's willingness to buy a car online, one of their you know biggest purchases other than their home, yeah. to buy that car online and to do it from a company that they'd never heard of. Mm. Um, that's a that's a pretty big uh, expectation, right? And so um, and so we uh, worked on their initial launch here in Atlanta, and then um, you know worked to really get kind of proof of concept in this market. And as soon as um, they began to, sh- to offer uh, free shipping um, or offer to fly you, send you an airline ticket for you to go pick up your car anywhere uh, from anywhere in the country, then they became a national player. And so at that point, uh, our strategy was shifting to go tell this story of a disruptive brand that's going to change the way people buy cars, um, go to New York and tell that story. And we knew that once we were able to get uh, the national media, the national business media, um, ABC World News and um, CNBC and um, Wall Street Journal and those kinds of media outlets to begin to cover uh, this company um, then we started grabbing that um, reputation-based content and pushing it out socially um, through some paid media, and they began to gain, you know, momentum. And so, um, five years into it, Forbes identified them as the fifth most promising company in the country, and we used that. Uh, that reference for a lot of the communication that we that we put out there, and um, you know, company has had you know very smart, very aggressive leadership uh, the whole way. Uh, the kind of leadership that makes our job uh, a whole lot easier. Um, they've brought in the right kind of expanded resources, other agency partners that we've worked with over the years. They went public. Uh, they become a Fortune uh, 1000 company, um, great stock performance. Uh, we recently announced their 100th market. Uh, and so, you know, very innovative, uh, ideal company um, to build a 360 reputation marketing program. Around. So I want to bring it, bring it back into relevance, specifically sort of like a, a summary moment, if you will. For um, investors and entrepreneurs, because, you know, so often I see, you know, early stage companies and companies that are struggling to grow because um, they don't understand the integrated approach to why it's important to not just do some digital media ads or why not just, or they'll just go, oh, I'm going to go hire a PR firm and they don't have it connected back in. They're just doing silos of, you know, sort of what you call the 360. There, it's a pie slice, if you will. And yeah. I think it's important for investors, particularly investors 
that are looking at early stage companies or investors that are looking at growth stage companies that might be on a Reg A plus or a, or a, a um, uh, 506C. So they're raising money on a national basis through general solicitation. And it's a point that I always try to drive home that you, it, it, they may not be able to afford all of it now, but they need to right. be able to have a strategy that says with this money, we're going to execute this plan that back to that objective market, you know, the sure. outcomes, where is it going to get us? So how does a entrepreneur measure that? Or how does an investor look at that to say, is this company, are they putting the pieces? That, because sometimes entrepreneurs just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And they, hopefully they're listening to this podcast and or is watching this video and they're like, man, I didn't really, I, sh I should think beyond that. I need to, yeah. And it's not all, you told me it's not all, it doesn't all, you work with other companies that do different pieces of the puzzle sure. to bring it all together, kind of like as a quarterback, but what are the telltale signs, if you will, that a company is, is considering it in the right way or not considering it in yeah. the right way? Yeah. So uh, first thing is um, you, you got to, you got to get your brand right. That's critical. Um, and so when we talk to startups, we look at the brand, we look at their positioning in the market. Um, sometimes they've spent a lot of time and money uh, on that brand. And so uh, we try not to create redundancies in terms of costs. Uh, but if there's a barrier to a name, to an identity, uh, to the messaging, um, then we'll, we'll push back a little bit. And it, it took us a little bit of time to land on messaging for, for Carvana that was actually resonating. Uh, it was not in the first month or the third month. Uh, you keep working at that and you keep evolving that positioning. Once you feel good about that, then you just gotta, you gotta decide what is, the, what is the primary business objective? Some cases, hey, we need to raise more money. So we may lean more on public relations and earn media to do that. Investors like reading about companies in local media and national media. Um, if the business objective is really more, hey, we've got to get, um, we've got to get a lead gen funnel going, we have to show that we can get some beta users on board. And so we may decide that maybe what we need more is a organic social um, strategy and a little bit of paid. Uh, before we really uh, push the PR side, right? Or it's levers, right? We may lever up on one area, lever down on another area. We're also big into testing different, if we're going to spend paid media, let's test some things. Let's spend, you know, $1,500 there, $1,500 here. It doesn't need to be crazy um, uh, investments for us to be able to see if we're getting some traction on different right messaging of paid tactics. Um, and so I think, you know, as a, as a uh, entrepreneur, as an investor, you have to be open to testing different things in the beginning within that 360 mix, um, which is why I think it's important to, to, you know, look for a firm that can do a little bit of everything so that they're not simply recommending the one thing that they do. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the key things is on, on the reputation side, and this goes to this idea of creating the trust and the goodwill yeah. because 
you know, Goodwill's this thing that a lot of people don't really, you know, it's hard to measure. It's hard to, to really do, but you know, it's brands have Goodwill. People have measured like Coca-Cola's brand yeah. and the Goodwill that it presents. And, and, uh, and it's one of those factors when you look at a balance sheet and there's the tangible assets and there's revenues and there's kind of stuff, but that oomph factor that yeah. makes a company, a, a fund, a, a private equity fund or a hedge fund or a corporation buy this company over that company, you know, that may have similar, similar dollar financial metrics, but it's the goodwill. It's that reputation yeah. that they have in the marketplace. And it's also handling how they handle crises, right? Yeah. So we all can look back at big companies that had an unexpected crisis and they had to to save their reputation because their reputation got trashed, like probably all way back when with the, with the tampering. Right. And and we've got a whole new thing. We now have to have special hands to open up bottles as a result. It changed an industry because of that. Right. But it was, it hit them hard. We've had, you know, there's just, there's all kinds of examples of, of that on the corporate side. And then um, now how we are dealing in this, um, this pandemic crisis it's, you know, different companies are stepping up and taking proactive measures to show their consciousness, the conscious capitalism side of that, their empathy for their customer, their empathy for the marketplace, whether it's State Farm that is giving a credit back to their customers on auto insurance without them even asking because people aren't driving, or a company like a Dove that is highlighting uh, the beauty of these these heroes on the front line and the struggles and the stress and the and the risks that they're taking, but by announcing that they're taking a percentage of their revenues and putting it towards nonprofit agencies that are providing care for folks. So there's you know different ways that people um, organizations approach that. So uh, speak to that idea of of the of that trust and how hard it is to create the trust and then how hard it is to regain it if you lose it. And then what does it mean in a situation like this where companies can choose to bubble up to the top because they've been proactive in doing something that would um, further their relationships or positive relationships with their employees as well as their customers. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing that any company, Um, needs to acknowledge is that at some point or another, they will face a crisis. Um, Whether that crisis is related to their, specifically to their company, something that they did, a miscue with a product or a service or staff, or whether it's a crisis within their industry that ultimately affects them. Um, Or the the situation that you know we face um i don't know every seems like every uh 30 40 50 100 years which is a pandemic right uh or an economic crisis it's going to come and so um you've got to be thinking about um you know how you build up some um uh, credits in the mind of your constituents and so I learned early on in my career, one of the, one of the better case studies um, I learned from um, a guy named Al Golan, who founded Golan Harris and um, was uh, 
there with Ray Kroc in 1956 to help him build a brand called McDonald's. And um, through Al Golan and that agency, uh, they put a great deal of emphasis around corporate social responsibility and community relations. And you had, you know, um, a rare situation in a brand that became iconic have a second iconic figure associated with it, which was Ronald McDonald. And so uh, that takes a lot to build two iconic brands within the same organization. Um, but they did it and they were known for how they gave back to local communities. And, you know, 30 or so years ago, we had this thing called the, you know, unfortunate LA riots that destroyed um, most of the retail within a, you know, several mile radius, um, uh, you know, out of the anger of the riots. Um, every single McDonald's location within that radius was untouched. Really? Every single one, untouched. And that was because even in people's anger, they remembered the commitment and the give back that wow. McDonald's had. And so, um, you know, you can't find a more powerful example of the importance of corporate social responsibility and com community relations. And so, you know, we've always thought about that um, as we think about um, our clients, big and small, and what can they do? Uh, we've always been, you know, advocates of don't simply give to a big organization uh, and be a small fish within that organization because you may not get those credits. You may not earn those. Uh, they may not be as visible versus why don't you start your own foundation um, or come up with your own initiative that has a Ronald McDonald-like brand associated with it. Of course, you're not going to build that kind of brand overnight, and that's perfectly fine. But to, to, to build a brand, a uh, secondary brand that you can own that reinforces your uh, corporate social responsibility is, um, is a you know, really smart and powerful strategy. We've done our own brands called YouthWorks, and it's focused on staff picking local charities that we can give uh, volunteerism or cash to even in the smallest way. Um, but it's tied to a theme and a, and a, and a philosophy that if we help young people first and foremost, um, that's going to make the biggest impact. So that was just kind of our approach, but, it, but an example of how you can, regardless of your size, create something that speaks to what you believe in and uh, that's ownable. And then when the crisis does come, um, people are going to remember that. And they will be, even, even in a divisive environment that we have today, um, they will be more forgiving um, of your brand. Of course, how you then respond. And today we see you know, how brands are responding to a pandemic in heroic ways, in proactive ways, um, and it's to some extent, you know, responsibility of agencies like ours to help them come up with um, an ownable approach uh, to how they can give back. 
Yeah, very good. So that's what I really wanted to cover within our podcast and, and this video today. Anything you'd like to add as part of closing comments? Um, you know, just that, uh, you know, I think if you're, it doesn't really matter the size of your company. Um, you know, I think everyone has the ability to make an impact. Um, but you know, what philosophically, what is important to you? And, um, uh, you know, hopefully it is more than just generating revenue and growing as fast as you can. Uh, that there is some consideration for, uh, you know, how you um, help your employees progress. Um, we've always thought that um, client retention was best served by staff retention. So if you can start there and then, you know, you know it's all kind of an, uh, a connected ecosystem, right? This generation the Gen X, they all have this idea that they want to make a difference. And so um, leverage that, use those folks. Um, you'll keep them longer if you give them an opportunity to also give back and participate um, in a way that's not just revenue generating. And ultimately, I think it will, it will serve um, not just the community, but serve your business. So you are a conscious capitalist yourself, then, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah, <laughs> oh, very good. So I want to encourage folks again, please go to trevelinakeller.com. And if you're uh, not looking at anything that's written, it's T-R-E-V-E-L-I-N-O-K-E-L-L-E-R.com. And of course, uh, again, I encourage you to sign up for their newsletter, check out their site, look at their blog. It's uh, very well done. And uh, my information is all at karenrands.co. You can get to my blog, to all of my social media. Thank you for listening to the Capacity Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a Entrepreneurs Resource Portal, providing access to dozens of lenders, offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings, 
It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.